So let's open in prayer. Lord, we are desperate for you. And Lord, the, the more we look around us and the more things that are happening around us and, and in this world, Lord, the more things we see, the evil, the more evil and the darker this world becomes, the more desperately we need you. And we cry out, Lord, come, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly for your church. And Lord, I pray that as long as we're here, as long as we're still on this earth, that we would be a force to reckon with, a force, Lord, guided and led by your Holy Spirit, a force, Lord, that prays against the evil in this world, a force, Lord, that shines a light so bright that it dispels the darkness. Lord, just do a work in your children. Do a work, Lord, in your church. We lift up Norma to you this morning. Pray for her, Lord, as she has suffered another stroke. We just pray for your hand upon her. I pray for peace and comfort for Lewis and for Rose, Lord. I just pray that you do a mighty work there, that you bless this family. And, Lord, I just pray for comfort for Lewis as he struggles with his mom so far away. I pray for his sister there to give her strength to help take care of her mom. And, Lord, I just we just put that situation in your hands. We lift up our brother Alcana to you. As he's injured his foot, Lord, is not able to work right now, we just pray for your provision and for your healing. Go before us now, Lord, as we open up your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, good morning. Live stream our electronic church, live church, Facebook live church. There's so many churches, I can't keep track of them. So, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Lord willing, we're going to finish the Church of Philadelphia this morning. If you need a Bible here, if you need one, just lift up your hand. We'll get you a Bible. If you're at home in your pajamas watching church this morning, it's no excuse not to have your Bible out. So, this morning, I want to begin this message with a brief study in the book of Daniel. So if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Listen, you're going to get two studies this morning for, a price, for the price of one. I mean, where else are you going to find a deal like that, right? I don't think there's any other churches in the Lehigh Valley that are giving you two studies for the price of one. So Daniel chapter 9. Now listen, we've been talking for a while about the age of the church, Right? And so to fully understand what that term means, we need to turn to Daniel chapter 9 because that's where we're going to learn about the age of the church. Because right now as we sit in this church this morning, as you're home on Facebook in your pajamas or on live stream, we are in the age of the church. This is the church age. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about that in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. So this prophecy given to Daniel, is about the Jewish nation. And I've said this before, and bears repeating, the tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. Okay? And so, this prophecy given to Daniel is determined or fixed and is unchangeable for the Jewish people. And Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, in your holy city. And that kind of says it all right there, doesn't it? Daniel's 70 weeks, this vision was given to him, the prophet Daniel, by the angel Gabriel. 70 weeks, which includes part of this prophecy already being fulfilled, and one-third of this prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. But notice who this vision is for. It's for your people. Daniel is what? Jewish. It's for the Jewish people. For your city, your holy city, which is what? Jerusalem. So this is a prophecy for the Jewish nation that, by the way, will affect the entire world. God is not done with the Jewish people, as some churches and even some denominations have taught. He's not done with the Jewish people. The tribulation and the persecution from the Antichrist will cause all, Paul tells us, all who are left, that remnant that's left, 
will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. All of Israel will be saved in that day. Now this vision that the angel Gabriel gives the prophet Daniel is a prophecy of 70 weeks, and it's calculated as years. And as I said, it has only been partially fulfilled. In the Hebrew, the word for weeks simply refers to a unit of sevens. And it is a unit, a measure. It's a measure, if you will. If I said to you a decade has passed, how many years would, would you know that to be? Ten years. That's a unit of measure, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. The Jews had a sabbatic year, and, and in that year, that year was divided into units of seven. And so we find an example of that in Genesis chapter 29 when Jacob agreed to serve for Rachel for how many years, you Bible scholars? Seven. So Laban, if you remember the story, tricks Jacob, and he sends his daughter Leah instead, right? And so Jacob wakes up the next morning next to Leah, and she, he's angry, no doubt. And so Laban tells him that their custom is that the oldest daughter be married first. And so in verses 27 through 28, Laban tells him to fulfill her week. And he added another seven years onto his service there. So by Jacob, fulfilling her week meant that he served another seven years. The Jewish people had a seven of years as well as a seven of days, and that's, so for them, that was just as familiar with seven days a week for us, a seven of years, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about weeks of years. This is one of the most important prophecies in all of Scripture because it deals with a very specific number of years and a very specific outcome. And it's also important because of its fulfillment. As I said, two-thirds of this prophecy has already been fulfilled. The last one-third of it is yet to be fulfilled. So Gabriel tells Daniel that there are two things that must happen first. And the first is the rebuilding of the city. In verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So there's two specific time periods here the angel tells Daniel about. Seven sevens, or 49 years, and 62 sevens, or 434 years. And then at the end of that 434 years, the Messiah, the Prince, will come. So together, those two periods of time equal 483 years. Did I lose you yet? Okay. The building of the city, the, re, the, the, re, um, the rebuilding of the city, took 49 years. From the time the city was rebuilt and ready to go, another 434 years, or, the last, or that next 62 weeks, occurred. At the end of that time, at the end of 483 years total, the Messiah, the Prince, Jesus Christ, rode into the city of Jerusalem. Now we know from Nehemiah chapter 2 that in 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the gates and, and the streets, and he did all of that. He got it all going, up and running. Forty-nine years into this, it was complete, and, when, and once it was complete, we entered into the second phase of this prophecy, the 62 weeks or the 434 years. Or, if you want to do the math, 173,880 days, exactly to the day, to the moment, something amazing happened. The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah King, entered the rebuilt city of Jerusalem, and that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me, Matthew 21, verse 2. So the disciples did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey, and then they laid their cloaks on the donkey, and Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Remember the story? So the crowds go ahead of him, and, and they're praising him, and they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And they're laying palm branches, and they're laying their cloaks on the ground in front of him. And so all of that took place to fulfill a prophecy by Zechariah. And remember, prophecy is God's signature on the Bible. No other holy religious book has prophecy in it. Not the fulfilled prophecy that this book has. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. <clears throat> so as Jesus, the Messiah, Prince, enters into Jerusalem that day, it was in fulfillment of not only the prophecy of Daniel, but also the prophecy of Zechariah. And so the crowd fully understood the significance of what was going on that day. They were acknowledging Jesus as their Messiah. The crowd seemed to get it. They're shouting to the heavens, declaring that Jesus is the one who's come to save them. He's their Messiah. But when Jesus didn't establish himself as a conquering king to lead the Jewish people in victory over the Roman oppressors, they did what? Just a few days later, those who were shouting Hosanna shouted crucify him. Jesus said this as he approached the city that day. If you had known, even you, especially this in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Luke chapter 19, verse 42. Jesus is saying you should have known. You should have known by the prophecies that I am the Messiah. Especially Daniel's prophecy that says next, the Messiah would be cut off. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of war. Desolations are determined. Daniel 9, chapter, verse 26. That word cut off in the Hebrew Mean, is karath, and karath means to cut down or to exterminate or to destroy. It means to kill. Daniel tells them, the prophecy's right there. The Messiah will come into the Jerusalem on that, very, on that specific day, and he would be killed. Not for himself. Jesus wasn't killed for himself, was he? He was killed for our transgressions. So the prince who is to come after that is, of course, the Antichrist. And he'll be a, a leader of the revised Roman Empire. And as we get deeper into Revelation, we'll look at that. Now, the prince to come, as Daniel prophesizes, is from the same people, the Romans, who came to destroy the city in 70 AD by the hand of the Roman general Titus. And we looked at that in Matthew 24. So the first two-thirds of this prophecy have been fulfilled. Jesus came into the city. Jesus was crucified. The city was destroyed by Titus. The third part of this prophecy, the remaining seven weeks of years, or seven years of Daniel 27, is yet to be fulfilled. So how do we know that? Because there's a gap between the 69 week of years and the last week of years, that last seven years. This is a what? A how many week prophecy? 70. So far we've only fulfilled 69. So how do we know there's a gap? How do we know we just didn't calculate wrong? Well, because at the end of verse 26, the temple's been destroyed, and all sacrifices have, been so have stopped. They've ceased. And at the beginning of 27, the temple must be rebuilt because sacrifices have begun again. The prophecy ends at 69 weeks with the Messiah, the Prince, Jesus Christ, being cut off or killed for our transgressions. And the 70th week, the next period, begins with the Prince of Darkness, the Antichrist in power. And as of today, there is no temple in Jerusalem, is there? Animal sacrifices have not resumed. And the Antichrist is yet to rise to power, although he's breathing down our backs, isn't he? So the last week, those last seven years, must refer to a future prophecy. That is the gap that we talk about. That's be the gap is between verse 26 and 27. We call that gap the church age, and that's what we're living in right now. 
But listen, just because we call it the church age in no way implies that God is done with the Jewish people. As soon as this church is removed from this earth, God is going to once again turn his attention to the Jewish people. And that last seven weeks, what's missing, that, that last piece of this fulfillment is the what? What happens in those last seven years of earth's existence? Tribulation. Tribulation in which God brings the Jewish people to him through the persecution of the Antichrist. And so that's why we say that the tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. And I said all of that because you got two studies for the price of one, but all of that so that there's no confusion over Jesus' statement here in chapter 3, verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So Jesus is saying in a nutshell here, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven without him, without being covered by his blood. And if you are not of Jesus, and I've said this before, and I'm sorry if this offends anyone, then you are of Satan. You see, there's no middle ground here. You can't be Switzerland in this. You can't be neutral. You're either for the Lord or you're for Satan. There is no middle ground. Now, after pronouncing a series of woes on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Jesus tells them that just because they're descendants of Abraham is not going to get them into heaven. And then he takes it a step further and he says, Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Matthew 23, So in Matthew's gospel, we get a kind of an idea of why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees. Listen to these verses, Matthew 15, verses 3 through 9. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, that he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God to no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the Pharisees, well, all of us, doesn't one of the Ten Commandments say what? Honor your father and mother. And so they had taken the money that should have gone to their elderly parents to help them in their old age and gave it to the temple treasury. Well, that makes them look good, right? I mean, they're not splurging the money. They're giving it to the temple treasury. But that's not what the heart of the law says. They did this not to not out of any pious um, act on their part. They did it for recognition for themselves. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. And worse yet, they led others astray by all of this, by making it so difficult to follow the law. They themselves followed the letter of the law, but forgot the heart of the law. And they made more laws on top of the 613 laws that already existed making it almost impossible for those who wanted to follow the law to follow it. And so as a result, many found the law to be burdensome and carried great guilt of thinking they were going to go to hell simply because they had broken the law. But that's not what earned them the name of the synagogue of Satan. What earned them that name was because they believed with all their heart that just because they were of the bloodline of Abraham, because they were Jews, that that was a free pass into heaven. But we know that there is no bloodline that gets us into heaven. It's only by being covered by the blood of Christ Jesus that you enter into heaven. And they had a choice. They had a choice just like each one of us had a choice, to accept Jesus as Messiah or not. And most, most of them did not. So going back to the prophecy of Daniel, remember that Jesus wept as he entered the city? He wept for the fate of Jerusalem, knowing that they should have known their day of visitation. Daniel had predicted this very day, when the Messiah would enter Jerusalem 
and be cut off or killed. Yet the Jewish leaders failed to recognize Jesus as Messiah, even though he fulfilled this prophecy and many others. This prophecy, this particular prophecy, they would have paid very close attention to because they were searching for the Messiah. So they would have been able to, they would have known the prophecy of Daniel and they would have been able to see that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel. But listen, in the end, no matter what laws you keep, no matter how many good deeds that you've done, unless you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you do all of that in the flesh. It means nothing for the kingdom of heaven. And all the works that are in the flesh are of who? Satan. They're of the enemy. They're not of us. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. That was a little jab at Jesus. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come for myself, but he, who, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of the father you want to do, of your father you want to do. So Jesus is very clear here, isn't he? He lays it out very clear. If you're not of him, then you're of Satan. If, if God is not your father, then Satan is your father. There's no middle ground here. And so the Jews of that day simply claimed that they were going to heaven because they were of Abraham's seed, and Jesus made it very clear that that is not going to be the case. You're not simply children of, you're not going to heaven because you're not children of God. What does classify us as children of God? In John chapter 1, verse 12, we get the answer. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, those who were born again, those who believe in Jesus Christ, are given the right to become children of God. Those who receive Jesus are called the children of God. Those who reject Jesus are the children of Satan. Sorry, but there just is no other middle ground here. Listen, you can kneel before whomever you want to kneel before, an idol, an emperor, even a protester. But if you don't bow your heart to Christ Jesus, you will not be saved, period. If you don't bow your heart to Jesus now, I guarantee that one day, saved or unsaved, you are going to bow to Jesus. Paul wrote to the Philippian church that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven and those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we've been going through the church of Philadelphia, we've been listing what God considers to be a good church, and so this is number nine. A good church in the eyes of God is one that recognizes and proclaims Jesus as Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the rock upon which he has built his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. So what is it, when we talk about salvation, what is it that we're going to be saved from? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What do you think Jesus is talking about there? Amen. The tribulation. Now, in the very next verse, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. And what that means is that when Jesus comes for his church, it's going to happen quick. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen without warning. So listen, be prepared. Be looking up. Because he's, he's coming for us. As one pastor used to say, look up, pack up, because we're going up. Paul wrote, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and remain shall be caught up together 
And listen, there's that word right there, that phrase, caught up. And when we get to chapter 4, you're going to learn what that means. Together with, him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do those words still comfort us today? Absolutely, especially, especially in the day we live in now. Jesus, like a thief, and he said he would come like a thief for his church, will come like a thief in the night for his church. And we'll be saved. Saved, not through the tribulation, not protected, not have a little bubble put over us, not through the tribulation, but from the tribulation. Not my words, the words of Jesus. From the tribulation. Jesus is speaking about what here? The rapture. And for those who don't believe that there will be a rapture, Jesus tells us right here in his word, you will be kept, guarded, saved from the hour that will come upon the whole world to test it. You will be saved from the tribulation. Not through, but from. That means being taken away, taken out of. Let me ask the men here this morning a question. Suppose you knew there was a violent storm coming that was going to bring death and destruction where, and where you were living, right? And you had the ability and the means to take your bride as far away from that danger as possible. Would you do that or would you just hunker down and hope that you and her were saved through this violent storm that brought death and destruction? Well, I'd hope you'd take your bride out, right? Unless you had a lot of insurance. But hope you'd take her out of there. And listen, that's exactly what God's going to do with his bride, the church. He's not going to allow us to go through this violent storm that is going to come upon this whole world. He's going to remove us from it. There is a violent storm coming. It's coming. And I know, I know many of you on Facebook Live who don't know the Lord, I know that you think, well, it's just one more crazy Christian talking about the end of the world. Listen, we talk about this because we want you to be warned that this is coming. And whether it happens in my lifetime or it happens 20, 30 years from now, we don't know for certain because God says no one knows the day or the hour. But listen, for any one of us, and I did a, I did a memorial service on Friday, any one of us can leave here at any moment. So you need to be right with the Lord at any moment. You need to be ready for his coming at any moment. Jesus is going to remove his bride from this impending storm. We call it the rapture. And so we are going to look a lot deeper into that when we get to chapter 4. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. Jesus is coming, as we've said, at a day and an hour that no one knows. Coming like a thief in the night. He's warned us about this. That word, coming quickly, or that phrase, quickly, in the Greek is tachio. We get our English word tachometer from that. A tachometer measures the RPMs or the revolutions per minute of your engine. It tells you how fast your engine's turning. And so Jesus has given us signs to help us understand how fast his return is nearing. He's warning us, his bride, to be ready, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. And that's point number 10 of a church that God considers a good church. A church that anticipates and is prepared for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for his bride. So Jesus mentions a crown here. It was one other church that he mentioned a crown to. Anybody know? We talked about it in men's group yesterday. Smyrna. The only other church that Jesus spoke of a crown was Smyrna. And we find that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the crown of eternal life. No one can take that crown from us, and we cannot lose that crown. So that is not the crown that Jesus is speaking of here. It's a crown of a victor. Now remember we talked last week about Philadelphia being a town that its mission was the Hellenization of the entire area. 
It was to make every area adopt the Greek cult culture and language. So the Greek games, the Olympia, would have been held here. They would have been very familiar with those games. And so the victors of those athletic competitions would receive a crown. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Victory over the flesh. Victory over the temptation that this world throws at us. Listen, when Jesus comes for us, the church, it's going to mean the end of all that. It's going to mean the end of our struggles with our flesh. It's going to mean the end of temptation. But until then, we still struggle every day, don't we, with this? And we don't want to lose our crown simply because we lost our struggle with the flesh. Now, our crowns are received at what's called the what? Judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. Suffer loss, what does he mean by that? The loss of a what? Of rewards. You're going to lose rewards. In the beginning of, chapter, of this chapter, Paul spoke of the context, in the context of farming, of planting, of watering, of laboring in the fields, and he was referencing the spreading of the gospel message. And he points out that some of us are called to water, some of us are called to plant. But both are needed in the fields. We labor together in the fields, and God gives the increase. Then he switches to a me the metaphor of a building. And what he's talking about here is the foundation of the church. And so through all that laboring in the fields, the church is being built. And Jesus tells us that he is the very foundation of that church. He is the chief cornerstone. Peter wrote, coming to him as a living... Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are, you and I, are the stones that are being laid one upon the other, building this spiritual house. And Paul tells us that the material that we're going to use as we're building this house is going to be inspected. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Paul wrote to the Romans, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess, to God, so that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. The judgment that ever every believer will face, every believer, let me specify that, will face does not determine your salvation. You are not going to be standing there at the Bema seat talking your way into heaven. You have eternal life. When you come to Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Is that something that's waiting for you? It's not a package that's shipped out to you and you get it later on. And if it's Amazon, it's weeks, months later. You have it. The moment you come to Christ, you have eternal life. That's not what we're fighting for, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that. We're going to be judged on our works. And some of those works that we'll be judged on is how faithfully we served Christ, how well we obeyed the, the commandment, the uh, Great Commission, how well we've overcome sin and temptation in our life, how, how well we've overcome those fleshly desires. The Bible tells us that we're going to give an account for our actions, an account of how our lives reflected Christ. And the fire that God talks about will burn up the wood, hay, and stubble. Those things that we've done in our life in the flesh have absolutely no eternal value, and they will burn up. The works done in the Spirit are the gold, silver, precious stones, and they will endure. They will endure unchanged. And it's for those works that we receive a crown. <clears throat> John tells us in his first letter, he says, Now, little children, 
abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Do you want, if you do not want to be ashamed at the fact that you have no other crowns but the crown of life to throw at Jesus' feet, then take heed as to what material you're using to build this spiritual house. Amen? And look at verses 12 through 13. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of, of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him a new name, my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so everyone I'm looking at here this morning has ears, at least two of them, or more, I don't know, but at least two. So Jesus says, he who overcomes. And I love this definition that I found of an overcomer. A Christian that holds fast their faith even until death against the power of their foes and temptations and persecutions. So an overcomer overcomes those constantly troubling sins that everybody experiences in our lives. Some people call them besetting sins. An overcomer overcomes the world and the temptation that we face every day in the world. An overcomer keeps their eyes on Jesus no matter what's going on around them. They're focused on the Lord. And so Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, and he tells the church as a whole, that an overcomer, he will make, uh, he will make a pillar out of an overcomer. Remember, the city of Philadelphia had been decimated by earthquake, right? It had been destroyed. And so two years later, they're still experiencing the aftershock. So people would go into the city, begin to work on their homes or do whatever they were doing. Aftershock would come, they'd run back out. So they were constantly running in and running out of the city. And Jesus is telling them that you will never have to go out again. You will never have to go out again. As an overcomer, your stability will now be in Jesus Christ. Not in the city, not in the world around you, but in him. And if you've ever visited the ruins of a city, and some of us have been blessed to visit the ruins in, in, in a Roman city in Israel, many times the only thing left standing in those cities after those earthquakes are the pillars. 1 Kings chapter 7 we read, Then he set up two pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up a pillar on the right and called its name Jochen. And he set up a pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. Now that name Jochen means he will establish. And the name Boaz means he will give strength. So Jesus is telling them that I will give you, the overcomers, my strength. You will stand with me. I will establish you and I will give you my strength. And so isn't that a great promise to know that when our life is crumbling around us, that we can find strength and support in Christ Jesus? Jesus said, I come to me all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The psalmist wrote, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near those who have a broken heart. Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18. So when life is falling down all around us, when it's crumbling around us, it's Jesus. It's his word. It's his presence that strengthens us and establishes us and plants our feet firmly on the rock. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> so number 11, the next point. A good church in the eyes of God is a church that overcomes all that the world has to throw against it and keeps their focus on Jesus no matter what. And then Jesus says, my God and the name of, my, of the city of my God I will write upon you. So every overcomer will have three names written upon them. The name of, God, the name of my God, Jesus says, the name of the city of my God and a new name. So let's look at each one of those individually. The name that God is writing on us makes us his. It establishes us as his. On the pillars in the cities, in most of those ancient cities, they would write the names of the prominent people who lived in the city 
or even sometimes the priest. So to have your name on a pillar just simply meant that you lived in that city and that you were a big shot. By God writing his name on the overcomers, he's saying that we belong to him, that to him, you and I are big shots. Paul wrote, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption when we cried out, Abba, Father. Putting his name on us begins the process of adoption for us. And so when we come to Jesus, we become children of God, as John tells us in 1.12, and it's worth saying again, but as many have received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. We belong to God. You and I are his adopted sons and daughters. Sometimes I think God wants to tear up my adoption papers, but it doesn't work like that. Thank God. God knew what he was getting when I came to him. Listen, when we got adopted, our address changed. We went from being citizens of this world to being citizens of heaven. And that's what God, Jesus says next. I will write on you the name of the city of my God. And that is a reminder, isn't it, that our citizenship is not of this world. It is in heaven. Paul wrote, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we so eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He also wrote, now therefore you no longer strangers but, and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are citizens of heaven. And that truth has recently become more important than ever before. This is not our home. If you don't remember a single thing from this message this morning, remember that. This is not our home. Social media is overrun with social justice and injustice platforms. Political allegiances, political correctness, memes in support of political agendas, memes mocking political agendas, they're all making the rounds, aren't they? And I see Christians getting caught up in that frenzy every day. There are some things that need to be posted, that need to be put out there, because there's some things that have been going on right under our noses for years, and Christians, for the most part, have been asleep. However, thank God, a lot of bloggers, a lot of websites, a lot of teachers have been screaming this from the, web, from the rooftops. For years they've been screaming about what's going on in the world, and they've been dismissed as what? Conspiracy theorists, right? And I've said recently that, listen, I guess I'm a conspiracy theorist now too, because you can see what they've been talking about all these years right before our very eyes, can't we? It's no longer being done in the darkness. So let me join the conspiracy theorists. There is a deep state. There is a communist agenda. There are left-wing radicals attempting to subvert not only this nation, but the entire world. There's a group of billionaires who are intent on bringing in the new world order. All of those things are happening right now, as you sit here in this church this morning, before our very eyes. Now, in a few months, depending upon what happens, you may not recognize the United States of America any longer. And that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. We may not recognize the world that we live in. But listen, that may be a good thing, right? Because if it draws people closer to Jesus than what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord has turned for good. Listen, I love this country. I love the people of this country. I love the police. I respect our laws. And this breaks my heart, as it does yours, to see what's going on around us. And we've been talking about Jesus coming for years. But we get all upset when that day draws close. It's where he's right here. He's right on the doorstep. And we know in order for him to return and rule and reign, who has to be here first? The Antichrist. There has to be an Antichrist first. A one world leader. And when that happens, there will be a one world government, a one world religion, and a one world economy. And right now, there are two things standing in the way of that reality coming to pass. The United States of America and the conservative values of a slim majority of our leaders, both Democrat and Republican, because I'm not getting into the political aspect of this any more than I am. And listen, even more important than that, 
the prayers of the spirit-filled saints who are praying against this evil. But once God has determined that it is time for his son to return to this earth to rule and reign, then that slim majority of Bible-believing conservatives holding things together by a thread and the prayers of the spirit-filled saints will be gone. And when that happens, when the rapture happens and the believers who are in political office, the believers who are the spirit-filled saints praying against this, when that happens, all hell will literally break loose. The left-wing socialists, progressives, whatever you want to call them, will have their way. They will usher in the new world order, and the stage will be set for the Antichrist to take over. We need to keep praying against this present darkness. But we must always remember that this is not our home. Jesus is coming back for us. Don't get too attached to this place. I don't think we're going to be here much longer. So that everything that we do from this point on, everything that we post, everything that we say, reflects the citizenship of heaven. God has marked us. We are his. And what we do, what we say, what we post reflects that. We are his ambassadors. Paul wrote, now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Here's another plug for the rapture uh, as we get to chapter 4. One of the first things that the government of any nation pulls out of a country that they have declared war against? Ambassadors. Are you an ambassador for Jesus Christ? Before this, this war, this spiritual war gets any hotter, the Lord will pull his ambassadors out of here. God's agenda should be the one that we're advancing. His platform should be the one that we're supporting. Listen, I know that sounds like a no-brainer to most of us, but there are actually pastors out there. There are churches out there. There's whole denominations out there supporting and taking the side of these social justice platforms. Now, I don't know about you, but as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. We are on his side, not on the side of any cause, not on the side of any group. We are on the side of God. And listen, God does not choose sides. So if you're on his side, you're on his side, period. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. So put your faith in him and stop apologizing for your sin and start repenting of that sin and turning to Jesus Christ. Listen, we're in a battle. We are in a war, and always remember that you and I are on the winning side. This battle isn't one with rhetoric. It's not one with violence or bowing before groups of protesters. It's one by getting on our knees to the living God and praying against this evil. It's one by shining the light of Christ to a lost and dark world. Amen? I got a little sidetracked there, sorry. But the last point that Jesus makes here is that my God, Jesus says my God here quite a few times, doesn't he? And that's in no way a denial of Jesus' deity. Let me try to explain this to you by asking you a couple questions. Is God your father? Is your father God? So, if God is your father and your father is God, can you call him God and father and still be speaking of the same person? Case closed. By Jesus saying, my God, he's simply saying, my father. And so the 12th and final point of what God considers in his eyes to be a good church is one that understands that this world is not our home and everything they do reflects our citizenship in heaven. And then Jesus says, I will write on you my new name. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, many times they do not name a child until after they determine what his, his character is going to be. And sometimes they do it that way. Sometimes they just name him after the father or after other people in the family. For instance, the angel told Zechariah that his son's name would be John, right? Even though no one else in Zechariah's family had ever been named John. John means, in Hebrew, Yochanan. And Yochanan means Yahweh is gracious. And so John's character was that he was chosen by God to prepare the way 
for the grace of God, who is Christ Jesus. Joseph was told that the name of his son would be Jesus. The name Jesus is Yeshua, meaning God saves. Jesus was sent by God for the salvation of mankind for their sins. My name means handsome. Now, my parents didn't have to wait to see what my character was going to be. As soon as they looked at me, they just knew I was Alan because I was handsome. God's going to write a new name on us as well, and it reveals our character, who we are. That name describes who we are in him. John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we are named after our Father in heaven. His character is reflected through us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to each one of us here this morning. Are you listening? So here's the application. The application is we add four more characteristics of what, a God, what God considers to be a good church. And by the way, after the message this morning, um, probably about 12 or 11.45, we will have keys to the message, so we'll be live here in church, and we'll also be on Zoom. For those of you who are live streaming now who want to join in, you have the number, call in. So about quarter of, we'll be doing keys to the message after the message. So number nine, as we said, it is a church that recognizes and proclaims Jesus as Lord. Now, as I've said before, that seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But listen, all the churches that we've looked at, except Smyrna so far, have bowed their knees to emperors and to idols. There are churches now that are bowing their knee to man because they care more about what man thinks than about what God says. And as they bow before man and idols, they're being conditioned to one day bow before the Antichrist. You know, I heard somebody say the other day, and it just blew me away, you know how they're tearing down statues now um, because they're trying to do away with all past memories, our history. And someone said they're just tearing down those statues, making real estate for the statue of the Antichrist that will go up all around, that people will be required to bow to. And as they're bowing now, they're being conditioned to bow before the statue of the Antichrist. Number 10, it is a church that anticipates and is prepared for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am amazed at how many Christians do not believe in the rapture. And a lot of these churches that we've read about here in these seven letters were more interested in what was going on in the world around them than they were in reading the word and knowing the word. They looked for the government and the world to save them. And there's so many people, even Christians today, who are looking for the same thing. And that's incredibly sad, isn't it? Because if you're not looking up, if you're not prepared for going up, then you have no hope, do you? Those who are waiting in anticipation for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ have a great hope. It's our blessed hope. But those in the world who have put their faith in the world really have no hope at all. Number 11 is a church that overcomes all and keeps its focus on Jesus. So these, these churches that Jesus addresses here on this ancient postal route had opened the door for all types of sin to enter in, from sexual immorality to watering down the word of God, and many churches have allowed the exact same thing through their doors today. They, haven't, they have not overcome sin and temptation in their lives. They've allowed sin and temptation to overcome them. And the twelfth point is a church that understands that this world is not our home. We could be so caught up in the things going on around us, things going on in this world, that we lose our focus on Christ. We lose our perspective that this is not our home, that our home is in heaven. And so when we start out each day with the thought and the idea that I don't belong in this world, I am not part of this world, my home is in heaven, my Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, it gives us a different perspective and it will change the way we view our temporary home, won't it? So in a nutshell, as we finish out this letter to the church in Philadelphia, 
A good church stands, and this is exactly what Jesus said, on the word of God and will never, ever, ever deny his name. Now, in order to be part of that church, you must first submit to him as Lord and Savior. And as you know, for the last couple months, we have been going through the ABCs of salvation. And until the Lord calls us out of here, or calls me out of here, we're going to continue to do that. Because I'm hoping and praying that when I get to that beam of seat judgment, that there are a lot of people that have heard this. And maybe some of them have come to Christ in hearing this. So in order to become of this part of this church that we're speaking about here this morning, it is as simple as ABC. We're going to keep it simple. Because Jesus said that you need to be like a child, right, to enter into heaven. So we're going to keep it as simple as a child's ABC. A is admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's exactly what Romans 3.10 tells us. As it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we may believe that we're good people, that we've done good things for people in our life, and that that should be good enough to get us into heaven, just like the Jews believe that just because they were children of, of Abraham that they would get into heaven. Some people believe that just because they're good people, they've done good deeds, that they're going to enter into heaven, that God's not going to turn them away. But listen, do you really want to put your faith, trust your faith in that? Do you really want to trust your eternal destination on your good works? Do you really want to stand before the perfect Lamb of God and explain to him how righteous and good you were on this earth? Based on the verses, those, just those two verses I read, we can never be good enough. We are not good enough. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous. So that means we need a Savior, someone to save us from that. So the next step is B, believe in your heart. Believe with your heart that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that God has raised him from the grave and that he is coming in glory again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said, to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever believe, lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? One faithful night in a jail in Philippi, a Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas answer him and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's the answer, isn't it? It's not keeping the law. It's not works. It's simply believe. Do you believe? Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul wrote, For with the heart one believes unto, unto righteousness, rather, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So once you admit you're a sinner, and you believe that Jesus Christ died for those sins, and you repent of that sin and turn to Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life from that moment on, does it? All that means is that you now have eternal life. And when you leave this earth, you are going to gaze upon Jesus for all eternity. Do you believe this? If you do, then that brings us to the next step of what must I do to be saved, and that's C. Call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Jesus. Confess that you are a sinner. Confess that you can't do this on your own. Confess that there's no amount of good works that you could possibly do to get you into heaven. Confess that you want to submit your life to Jesus Christ and you want him to be your Lord and Savior. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will what? Be saved. Listen. I know every church, the churches I've come up through, love to do a sinner's prayer. They love to do altar calls. And there's nothing wrong with that, nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think some people are lulled into the fact that there's some kind of magic words in that prayer that they say that automatically saves them. And that's not what it's about. It's not the words, it's your heart. And I've said a thousand times, and you've heard this from other people as well, the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches. It's knowing Jesus here in your head or having Jesus here in your heart. That's the difference, 18 inches. 
If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that you need a Savior, then you will be saved. But if you were to put this into words, if you need that help, then I'm going to pray a simple prayer with you. And again, remember, it's not the words of the prayer. It's the heart behind the words. If you believe in your heart. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your head now. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner. I could never reach heaven in my own good deeds. Right now, I place my faith in you, Lord Jesus. I believe that you died for my sin. That you are the Son of God. And that you rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scripture. Please forgive me of my sin and help me to live for you. I submit my life to you, Lord Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I may walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord, for accepting me into your kingdom, for making me, Lord, one of your children and giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So listen, if you prayed that prayer this morning and if you meant it in your heart, then welcome. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. You are now a child of God. And when that trumpet blows, we will all meet in the air. So until I see you again or until I see you in the air, God bless you.